Well, in the Anglican Communion, we lost a great veteran of our faith. And his name was J.I. Packer. He wrote lots of books. And one of the books he wrote which really impacted the church of God was a book called Knowing God. And in this book, he says this profound statement. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. Now, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Let me say that one more time. Listen very carefully. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. What does Packer mean by this statement? Well, even if we write hundreds of Christian books, speak at all these different conferences for the faith, um, see your church grow with soaring growth, and do all these extraordinary things, our faith in God can still be absent. We can still have a dead knowledge of God. And this is a major problem in Hosea. Even though God's people celebrated yearly festivals, new moons, Sabbath days of rest on Sunday usually, and all her appointed feasts, they had no knowledge of God. And if we have this personal knowledge of God at work in us, we will have a true awareness of sin, the truth of God, and that will lead to a flourishing relationship with God. What I'm trying to get at is there's a difference between knowing facts about God and actually experiencing God in your life. And unfortunately, when we read Hosea, we see that the people of God had that kind of database of who they thought God was, but they didn't actually experience God in their lives. It's a sad reality. Israel had no active relationship with God. And to illustrate this point for today's world, imagine that you woke up early in the morning for the Anzac Day dawn service. Imagine placing on your grandfather's war medals, pinning rosemary to your coat lapel, laying a wreath of flowers on a war memorial and standing with great respect during the last post. Even though you participate in this event, your Anzac Day observance, imagine this, that your Anzac Day observance becomes merely a badge of social, public participation rather than a day of deep remembrance as you recall the sacrifices made for your well-being. That is Israel in a nutshell. Even though they enjoyed all the religious festivals on their yearly calendar, there was no life-changing remembrance of God. They had no experience of God. They had forgotten God. And here's my first point to hold on to. They had a dead knowledge of God. It's a super sad reality. And we'll see why in the text because of their lack of knowledge of 
experiential, heartfelt knowledge of God, God has charged them now in Hosea 4. I'm going to read this passage, the first three verses once again. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder and stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of the land mourns, sorry, because of this, the land mourns and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. The charge is quite intense. It's a lawsuit against the people of Israel. And we see three things there. They had no knowledge of God, no faithfulness, therefore, no love. They were called to live their lives for God's glory, to love all the nations around them. So the orphans, widows, people on the way, journeying through Israel, of course, to stand out, be a nation that was like a beaming light to the world. Yet they have become the complete opposite. They had become what I would call sin city. And then imagine that they had a newspaper called the Daily Telegraph. It wouldn't look too different to ours. It would be filled with political scandals. It would be filled with great injustices. It will be filled with even pages in the back with contact details for promiscuous women, women and men. It was a scandalous place to live in, Israel was. And because of that, we see that the land is crying out in desperation. Because of their sin, we see this kind of cosmic destruction of the land occurring. The fish are dying, the beasts are dying, the birds are dying. Israel's dead knowledge was literally hurting the land. And as I reflect upon this point, I wonder if the environmental chaos in our world is linked to our active disregard, indifference towards God. I wonder if it's linked to our sin. It's just something I wonder. I wonder if out of God's sovereign love for us, he's responding to our sin by reducing, for example, the fish in the sea. For as we know, the populations of fish in our seas are declining at a rapid rate. The fish are not even able to replenish at a fast enough enough rate for human consumption. Many sea creatures on, are on the brink of extinction because of this. And those who feed on the fish, such as seals and whales and birds, are also declining. declining. Reefs are dying. Many sea creatures are on the brink of distinction. So I ask myself this question. Is our shrinking fish supply God's response to our human rebellion? Is this evidence of our sin, and it's just me asking the question. I'm not saying it is, but it's me asking the question. Because as we know from Hosea, God sometimes withdraws his blessings to reveal the true 
affections of our heart. And if our God is our belly, the fading away of our food supplies must at least act as a warning. The land might be crying out to you, turn back to God before it is too late. The land is crying out, it's groaning. All the chaos is Jesus, your King. And so the land, my first application is the land can reveal our indifference, our dead knowledge of God. Because when we turn away from God, one of the signs is that we generally do mistreat God's world and other humans. And so I just asked that question today. But let us now turn to verses 4 to 8, and the charge against Israel gets even more intense. There are a certain group of people responsible for Israel's rebellion. Any ideas who that might be? And you'll be shocked by this, ready? It's the priests. It's the leaders of faith in Israel that are primarily responsible for Israel's rebellion. God says in verse 4, With you is my controversy, O priest. The nation's sin was primarily um, the aftermath of Israel's poor spiritual leaders. The nation had rejected God because the priests had no longer a relationship with God. They had forgotten God's holy law, which was there to instruct their life and keep them that holy, bright nation. And because of this chief failure from the priests, Israel was steered away from God altogether. Joshua Moon, who's a scholar in Hosea, says this. The priests had become blind guides, and so no guides at all. And so my third point is, priests were responsible for Israel's dead knowledge. And this charge against leaders, spiritual leaders, is deeply relevant to all Christian leaders today. And it's a point that actually applies specifically to me. Why? Because I'm a priest of the church today. And so this application here is for pastors, leaders of Christian organisations, chaplains, scripture teachers, principals of Christian schools. For like the priests of Israel, we can destroy the people of God by rejecting an intimate relationship with him. And Paul makes this point quite clear when he urged his son, not literal son, but the the one he discipled, who's called Timothy. He warned him like this. He said, watch your life and doctrine closely, Timothy. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. But what does Paul mean? Consider these two points. One. The minister must keep a close eye on his or her character and conduct. This is a call to live a holy life. Holiness is the habit of being in one mind, one being with God. 
This is true knowledge here. And this is critical for when our mind is one with God, we will endeavor to shun every known rebellion in our lives and delight in the commandments of Christ, which is revealed in his Sermon on the Mount. And so the holy minister of the gospel will strive to be like Christ in all of life. The holy minister will desire to be an apprentice of Jesus as he encourages his congregation or her congregation to be apprentices of Jesus with him. The minister will be zealous for the law in the public eye just as much in the private home. Such a minister of the gospel will admit their wrongs and forgive others. The minister will pursue the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it goes beyond the minister's personal life. The minister is called to also care for the bodies and possessions, characters and souls of those under his or her care and to do good to his or her neighbours. And so my first point there is the faithful minister must keep a close eye on his or her character and conduct from this 1 Timothy scripture. And the second point there is the faithful minister must keep a close eye on his or her doctrine and teachings. Doctrine is the fundamentals of our Christian belief. This is a call to guard the precious truth that God has given to us to pass on throughout the ages, which are revealed in the scriptures. The minister is called to work hard at studying the Bible. I'm called to spend time soaking myself in the word of God, not just in an intellectual way, but in a heartfelt desire to know God way. Such a minister teaches the truth of God to the saints at worship each week. It becomes one of his or her major responsibilities to lead the congregation through the preached word. The faithful minister must have an extremely high view of what God is saying to us for all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, as Paul tells us. The faithful minister must believe the scriptures contain all things necessary for our salvation. They're full of assurance, freedom. It is good news which I'm called to proclaim with great clarity and faith. But what happens when the Christian leader no longer wants to live that holy life? No longer wants to live by the scriptures. Well, this is going to be a bit of a kick in the gut again, and it's quite sad, but the Anglican Church of Newcastle has one of the worst histories in the Anglican community globally, not just in Australia. Why? Because of child abuse. And the bishops are super cautious now on safe ministry practices to the point that we are one of the leading churches in Australia when it comes to safe ministry. 
And one of the ways in which they're guarding the well-being of their priests is that they're giving them opportunity every single month to meet with a psychologist. Because they saw when a minister doesn't have a good well-being, and also meet with a on top of that, when a minister doesn't have a good well-being spiritually, they're more likely to act outside of their calling, which is to lead the people of God through word and conduct. And so they're encouraging us to remain holy, to be steadfast in Christ, and to teach the scriptures, not just to you guys, but to ourselves in a deep and intimate way, in order to overcome those great errors, such as that heinous crime of hurting a child. And so I have a very high view of what Paul's teaching here, as you can see. And I just think it's so sad in Hosea that the priests in charge of the spiritual well-being of God's people actually were the ones who instigated their rebellion against God. And I have the capacity to do that to you guys. And so pray that I will be a minister overflowing with faithfulness, a true knowledge of God and love. Yeah, could I ask you to do that? Keep praying for me. Because when people pray for me, I notice it just through their love for me. And also, even in preaching, I know when I've been prayed for. Because I see the affections of God's people drawing close to me as I draw close to them. Even through the preached word. So keep praying for me that I'll guide and lead you guys faithfully. But my point is, faithful ministers are essential to our thriving relationship with God. And there's one more verse that I want to touch on, verse 9 here. Let me read. It says, And it will be like people like priests. I'll punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. The priests, the whole nation of Israel, will get what they deserved ultimately. Since God is a God of love, He's a God of justice and he um, pays back what we deserve. And so what we hear is God judging Israel for their crimes against not only God, but the whole land. And so my fourth point is Israel will be judged for her dead knowledge. And so to help us not to become like Israel, we must ask God to urgently place his true knowledge, which is a relational experiential knowledge on our heart. And the knowledge of God is placed on our heart when, in the New Testament context, Christ becomes our king, the king of our life. As Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man, which is Jesus, will acknowledge you in the presence of God's angels. And so if we warmly embrace the greatest gift known to humanity, the gift of a relationship with God in Christ, we will not be destroyed by a lack of knowledge, but we will be assured of an everlasting relationship with God. How good is this news? Is that good news for you? That you have that great assurance of salvation in Christ? That you can have a true knowledge of God by being one with Jesus, which I've said last week is your spiritual husband. But how do we know if we have that true knowledge at work in us? 
Well, a 17th century minister, um, when he was unpacking this passage of Hosea, gave us three points. He said, we will prize Christ deeply when we um, treat Christ highly, that we follow his instructions, his directions, and that we will desire to learn more about his life. In other words, God's true knowledge is at work in us when we prize Christ. His teachings, his lifestyle, his legacy so highly that an intimate relationship with him becomes our lifelong ambition. Let me say that again. God's true knowledge is at work in us when we prize Christ so highly that a true knowledge of him becomes our lifelong ambition. Amen? True knowledge of God means prizing Christ. And friends, if you want to... We have this opportunity every Tuesday, right, to gather and grow as Christians. But if you would like to meet with someone one-on-one or more intimately, um, to be coached in this way of Jesus, if you would like to be an apprentice of Jesus more intimately and prize Christ all the more through that um, one-to-one discipleship, please let me know. I would love to um, keep on encouraging you in this walk, even outside of the Sunday, Tuesday service. And so, I want to, but my point is I want to encourage you to prize Christ because when we prize Christ, it's this evidence that we have a true knowledge of God. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. And Lord, we do pray that you give us that experiential, true, intimate knowledge of you by prizing Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour. And as we prize him each day, we do pray that you continue to guide us in his way for all of life and for your glory. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.